Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Eric Janagi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Great. So he is joining us from the great state of Texas, which all my babies are born in Texas, Texas Tech Medical School, but I'll forgive you, you're at UT Austin, right? (laughs) I had to give you a little poke here. That's all good. (laughs) Um, But what's so fascinating about Dr. Um, Janagi is that he is not only a professional golfer, but he has a PhD, which is a very small percentage of professional PGA players, but he's a specialist in behavioral health. And so he's a sports psychologist, behavioral health, you know, psychologist. There's so many facets to the things that you do. Um, I really wanted to, to dive into someone who helps elite athletes. So we're already in awe of elite athletes as it is. But I want to learn, how did you decide to join this field? I mean, that's such an interesting field to study. Um, yeah, I just kind of got lucky. And one of the, I did my undergrad at the University of Kansas, actually. So we got all uh, kinds of Big 12 rivalries everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, one of the last classes I, I took happened to be a sports psychology class from Dr. David Cook. and just seemed like the next indicated thing. And so then an idea popped in my head, like, why don't you become a golf professional, but then emphasize, you know, helping golfers on the mental aspects of the game. So then I went on and I got a master's in applied sports psychology and then got into the golf profession. And then one thing led to another and I found myself at UT and got my PhD in behavioral health and more emphasis on applied sports psychology. So so that's incredible. So when you think about, I mean, golf is a really interesting sport in and of itself that you just don't get so frustrated. Cause I mean, I hit a golf ball and I'm like, what's the point? This little ball is not going in that little hole for me. I mean, I just, I just, I mean, I can see how easily that could be. You're almost competing against yourself and the terrain and the different, you know, the difficulty level of wherever you're playing. So tell us, what have you seen that's pretty consistent across the field of, you know, with golfers, what is their, mentality and where, where do they get stuck? And then you come in and help. Uh, well, there, there's a couple of things. Cause you can get stuck on both the good and the bad. So, you know, okay. you might be hitting, you might be hitting a, uh, a, a time in your performance career where you're not getting the results that you want. You're not getting the outcomes, um, the scores that you're shooting are not, you know, producing, um, the results that you desire. So you can have the stress from that way, but then you can also get some stress and, and, and excitement from, you know, actually having the re- the results and, and getting close to, you know, tasting that first victory. So, you know, from golf, I mean, you're battling emotions of excitement or you could be battling just emotions of stress and pressure because in golf, I mean, if, if you're not getting the results, you might not have a job next year. So it's all about the results. So you can have, you know, different variables that are coming into play that can actually inhibit your ability to perform a task that they're highly competent at performing under normal conditions. But now you start introducing some of these psychological variables 
and now hitting that little white golf ball that's just sitting still looking at you, you know, it's quite as easy as it was supposed to be. No, I mean, it's funny because my husband would say, oh, Lori, you know, I remember him saying, we should go out to the driving range and just hit the ball. Like, I can't even hit the ball. Like, you're you're ready, and you're watching everybody else, how they hit the ball so masterfully, and it flies, and then I swing, and the ball's still there. (laughs) So I am not, there's not much of a natural talent there. But so when you say that there's from the good and the bad, I mean, you could probably even have from week to week good and bad like you you're getting closer and then you're falling apart and so how do you begin to even dissect where to begin to help someone well so most of most of the time you know when athletes come to me and they start telling me their story and what's going on whether it's okay you know i'm so close to success but it seems like the closer i get to success then you know something kind of comes in and sabotages it or i'm not having success and you know every failure that builds and builds just leads to more and more frustration. And then I'm, you know, I'm kind of hyper-focused on the bad that could potentially happen, so to speak. So in a nutshell, it's just a problem of attention. So where are we focusing our attention? Um, Because where we focus our attention, as we know, can create stress or just an emotion. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be stress. So in the positive sense, it can create a positive emotion, right? The thrill of victory. But if we start experiencing the thrill of victory before we have the victory in hand, it can actually sabotage that victory. The same thing as, you know, the agony of defeat. If we like, if we start anticipating the agony, the, you know, the agony of defeat before anything happens, well, it can actually, you know, start leading to that defeat. So you know, when our attention wavers from in, in sports, the task at hand, which really at the end of the day, they're just trying, right? The only thing they need to be thinking about is, okay, the golf ball's here. I need it to go there. And this is how I want to get it there. Okay, make this swing and should be all right. That's obviously in a perfect world, right? We keep it that simple. Well, you know, as I, I, I talk to them like caveman golf, hit ball there. Right? <laughs> Don't make it any more complicated than it needs to be. But, you know, that's the whole, the whole fun of it is that everybody else is trying to make it into something that's more complicated. So now we introduce these variables like U.S. Open or right now they're playing the President's Cup. So it's like, ah, oh, this is so meaningful, right, that it adds all these distractors into it. And that's the challenge is how, how do we put our attention where it needs to be so that it, it doesn't change me emotionally, which in a competitive aspect, when our emotions change, our physiology changes, when our physiology changes, our ability to execute a finite and a gross motor skill become impacted. So, so the, the thousand dollar question is how do you get them to focus and how do you draw their attention and get rid of all that emotional craziness that's going on? Yeah. It's returning it back to the simplicity of, of the game and you know for golfers they use what's called a pre-shot routine so that the pre-shot routine is supposed to be this systematic kind of process where it's like okay attend to this attend to this attend to this boom Hmm. so they have their mind you know busy if they're you know because if your mind is busy with something then it's not going to be on everything so it's going to be a lot quieter but it's just making sure it's busy with things relevant to the ball going from A to B. 
So, so it's kind of like a pilot. He gets in the plane. He goes through his pre-flight checklist. It's the same idea before you try. You try to make it more automatic with even with all that going on. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So we want now. We want our routines to be autom- somewhat of a habit. We want to be comfortable with the routines there. But now, see, habits are another tricky thing too. And so when I'm talking about my students and when we're talking about stress, the relationship there, so habits are good because they're efficient, right? Take less energy, which is fine if the habit is leading us where we want to go. So, right. I talk about habits as being autopilot, and I tell my students, okay, if that autopilot's flying you to Hawaii, bam, go back in the back of the plane, have some drinks, it's all good. But now, sometimes we develop habits that aren't as productive as others, right? Some of our habits are actually maladaptive, cause us additional stress, and in a health sense, right, create um, health disparities. So that pilot's flying us into the side of a cliff. So now, but stress can actually put us into a more habit mode. And then to get back to the whole golf analogy, I don't want them, I don't want it to be so habitual, so effortless that they can do it and then their attention still be on all these distractions. So if that habit becomes too deeply ingrained, you know, we can be doing things, right? And then we look up and we're like, wait a second, how did I drive to work when, you know, I'm not even working today? Mm-hmm. And so there's another, there's another tricky aspect to it is the, golf is hard because they have to be focused. I mean, they have to be pretty, pretty purposeful and pretty deliberate what they're doing. But at the same time, you know, it has to be a more relaxed and kind of easygoing focus because if it's, if it's too intense, then that can actually disrupt their ability to perform. So. I mean, because it's such a, it's a, a gross yet also a very narrow target that it's not like tennis where you're just running around and you you can almost go automatic, right? Because you've learned overhand and whatever, or even baseball, but maybe not with pitchers. My son was a pitcher catcher, but um, I mean, that really could be a hard thing to balance. So how do you teach someone to say, okay, you're driving your car, but you still need to be thinking about what's going on. How do you do that? You still need to be mindful. And that's, you know, that's, mindful. it's a slow process for, you know, and a lot of times when I'm first working with an athlete, you know, and they're, it's about creating awareness. And so then they're just kind of creating awareness of, I like to start with, you know, when they're playing really well, what are you attending to? What are the things that you do focus on when you're playing well and when that autopilot is going where we want it to go? And then also think about, okay, well, when you're not playing so well, what are some of the things that you're attending to and, and how do you experience those things? And then they, it, it starts becoming really clear. Mm. It start become, so the first step is awareness. We've got to be, oh, okay, my mind's wandering. It's going here. It's focusing on this thing. This thing's really not relevant to this golf ball going where I need it to go to. So once we start doing that, and then it's just this process of, you know, being some, being purposeful, recognizing when their mind is, you know, shifting to something that that's not going to help them perform at their highest level and then bringing it back. And so then using some behavioral strategies, whether it's, you know, taking a deep breath or, and then, you know, recreating their, 
pre-shot routine. So it is a little bit more deliberate mm-hmm. uh, and purposeful so that their mind is occupied with something that's, you know, contributing to their success rather than, than taking away from it. So you're, you're really teaching mindfulness basically. I mean, you're, of, yeah. And then, so what would, what would be an example of a pre checklist? Like what, what exactly steps would a golfer go through that you would consider a, a good strategy? Well, most of so a lot, when I work with golfers, one of the first steps I have them do is just to get present with the breath. So just taking a, a breath just to kind of get centered on, okay, now I'm here, right? If I can consciously go, okay, inhale, exhale. Now I know, okay, I'm here, I'm present, I'm in control. If I'm in control, we got a good chance here. Then for golfers, right, then they're trying, then they got to make a plan. So they got to go, okay, where do I want this ball to go? So then they got to pick a good target and then they got to visualize, see how they want it to get there. And then they got to feel, so then they do practice swings, right? So then they're trying to feel like, okay, how do I create this shot that I just envisioned? Mm. And they got to go up there and just trust that, but then they throw it into autopilot and trust that that golf swing is going to going to respond to the thoughts that they, they gave it. So really, I mean, because every single shot is never the same. So it's not like a pitcher on a mound is throwing a ball. I mean, it's just a mound is a mound wherever you go. You're still yeah. that many feet away from the plate and throwing mm-hmm. it. It's not, it's just, you have the wind, hills, yeah. slant, obstacles, yeah. people, noise, stress of, you know, paying whatever tour or whatever special um, games going on. Wow. I never really thought about how difficult golf is. It's even more difficult now that I think about it. So I have more respect for that. Um, It is is more difficult, you know, when everybody, when everybody can do the physical part, because they can all hit the ball well, and they can all hit the ball. Not all of us. (laughs) Right. At that level though, right? Right. They've passed that, right? But now everybody that they're competing against is good from the physical standpoint. And then what actually starts separating the cream from the crop are the ones who can deal with the distractions, who can keep themselves present and mindful and focusing on each shot. Because you, I mean, it really is technical skills that they're learning. And then you can get to a, I mean, just through hard work, learn the technical skills. But then it's, how much would you say it's technical skills versus the mental stuff that as far as someone being successful? Is there a percentage that you would well, say? Well, <laughs> if I was if I was Yogi Berra, I'd say it's ninety percent mental, and the other half is mental. You know, he said some quote like that. Put <laughs> up with numbers like that. I don't know. I mean, it's a very physical game. Obviously, they got to have both power and they have to have finite precision. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to have skill. Right. But they've worked years and years to develop those skills. So now it's pretty much when they're at that level, they have the skill. And so the things that tend to, you know, make their performance vary tend to be more from the mental side because those are the those are the things that vary. Hmm. Like the conditions, the circumstances that they're in. And so then they're also playing individually, but some, you know, in college there's teams, right? The teams right. will I don't know the specifics of that, but have you found there to be a team dynamic? Because I know with high school sports, I had three kids and they all went through high school sports, different ones. I mean, some of them just seem cohesive and they do very well. It's like they're just all in flow. 
But then there's moments like they're in the winning moments. Like, I don't know, baseball seems to be the one that just really, it's like, they say like they're snatched victory out of the jaws and put it, you know, really snatched victory, just handed it over defeat. I mean, they literally gave the team, you know, here you go. We're going to let you beat us because they just seem to all fall apart. And yeah. we're like, what just happened here as the parents in the stand? I mean, is there, have you found that dynamic to occur also? Like there may be one person that's really good about cohesing a team or meltdown, or does it seem to be more individual? Well, so there you kind of describe what's considered the phenomena of emotional contagion, hmm. right? So then, you know, and, and this vicarious experience where in a baseball sense, when you can see your other teammates performing and you can see them stressing out, well, then you can kind of catch that, right? And then now you're stressing and now you're pressing and then, you know, then you're make then you're afraid of making an error, which, you know, when you become afraid of making an error, you seem to make an error. So then it can kind of snowball in that regard. Golf, you're not really aware in the in the college setting. Most of the time you're not really aware of what your competitors are doing. But there are, there is an aspect of kind of sharing confidence. So we were fortunate to have a pretty good golfer here at the University of Texas named Jordan Spieth. And cool. um he was pretty good. And having him on the team actually helped enhance the confidence of the other players. So in that way, yes, you know, one individual can have somewhat of an impact on the other players because, you know, his confidence was kind of contagious to the rest of the players on the team. And so that, that was very helpful. Yeah, I've heard of the same kind of phenomenon in swimming, you know, so you're very individual, you know, you have your own lanes and, and, and meets and, um, but then there's maybe one person that's able to really get people to push beyond what they thought their limits were, which is really amazing in and of itself. So when you, have you seen a common denominator with, I, I don't know what maybe at the collegiate level or even the professional level with golfers that seems to be like, there's a they hit a, like a certain threshold and then they struggle with the same thing. Have you noticed any common threads? Uh, not really common. I mean, well, what happens in golf as you, as you gain experience, you also gain a little bit more experience with failure. Hmm. And so you see a lot of young golfers come in and they have a whole lot of confidence. They play a little bit more aggressively but, you know, golf inevitably, inevitably golf is going to get you, you know, a time or two mm. and those, you know, throughout the season and then those seasons start adding up. And what you find is, you know, sometimes the veterans wish that they had the same confidence that they had when they, when they first came in, when they were young and didn't have so many, so many wounds, but, uh, yeah, that's probably the only thing that I that I that I've seen in common that you know it's tends to go down. Hmm. Well, it's kind of like young entrepreneurs; they're the ones that will take the chance because they don't know they can fail yet. But then, right. as you get more, you know, experience, like the, the fear comes a factor, yeah. and that that yeah, absolutely, I understand. That makes sense. So maybe it behooves us not to have. You know, you hear people are like, "I wish I knew." you know, what I know now, 20 years ago, maybe you don't because maybe that would have backfired. Yeah, and, not, not, not always. So, you know, one of the things that I try to promote is flexible thinking. 
What does flexible thinking? Well, thinking that's contingent upon the context that you're in. So there's really no right or wrong. It depends on, well, what context I'm in. So the most one relevant to, to golf and, uh, and maybe even physicians practicing because they tend to be pretty perfectionistic. So perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of research came along. It's like, no, this perfectionism is bad. Right? So then we shelf perfectionism as this thing that can undermine you know, health, it can undermine psychological well-being, it can undermine performance. But to me, that's a very overly narrow and rigid way of looking at a construct. And so now some of it's evolved and we're like, wait a second, this can't be all bad. There's times when perfection is good. And so in preparation, perfection is very good. So when I'm working with golfers, I'm like, when you're practicing, I want you to be as perfect as you can. I want you to putt to a toothpick. I want you to try to hit 10 shots right down the middle of the fairway in a row. I want you to make a hundred putts in a row, right? So increasing the demands, making practice extremely challenging and trying to hold yourself to a high standard. But then once they go into a tournament, I'm like, you got to have the attitude. It's just got to be good enough. Mm. It's just got to be good enough. It gets over there, it gets over there and then it falls in the hole. I'm all right. Doesn't have to get in the hole perfectly. So, but you have to be able to have that shift between, okay, I'm going to strive for perfection. I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to study my butt off. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to gather as much knowledge as I can. But then once I go to perform, I got to trust the fact that, okay, you know, it's going to be good enough. I can't worry about everything being perfect, everything going right. You know, sometimes athletes, you know, sometimes athletes and and these athletes tend to, to get weeded out, but you know, when they need everything to go perfectly for them to play well, they don't last too long because the stars rarely line up. And that's one reason why I don't talk about getting into the zone very often. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, you don't go to my website and see me going, I'm going to get you into the zone. Let's talk about the zone. Now, most of the time you're dealing with shit hitting the fan, if you don't mind my right. friend. No, 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 trust me, we've had worse. Nate. <laughs> okay, so... And most of the time, you, you got to deal with less than perfect, but you still got to be able to get the job done. And that's true whether you're an athlete or whether you're a physician or whether you're a lawyer. You got to be ready for things to go wrong, but be able to respond to those challenges. I mean, that makes complete sense. So, I mean, I was in the military, but they train you to be prepared, you know, the perfect training scenario but they also train you for when things go awry as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so do you use any type of like visualization as far as like, I mean, I remember, I think Michael Phelps when he swam like instead of world record and his goggle was run, you know, down his face, he yeah. didn't stop because he had already visualized that might actually happen and being so comfortable with the stars not aligning. I mean, do you use any techniques like well, that? Actually, I mean, he actually practiced that. He actually just practiced swimming without goggles. Oh. So, I mean, You want to be ready. You got to simulate. And there are times, there are times for that. In your preparation, you got to do simulation training. You've got to, you know, we learned from the astronauts. (laughs) You got to to be prepared. You got to simulate this thing. You got to practice. You got to rehearse, rehearse these things. And, you know, golf is, golf provides enough adversity. So you, you, but, you know, Tiger Woods is, you know, kind of famous for, 
his practice and how stringent his practice was and, you know, him, you know, being a little bit crazy sometimes in his practice. Cause he would, he would throw the golf ball down and some of the worst lies you could have and be like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to, you know, if this happens, I got to know how to get out of this thing. Mm. You know, mm. so you got to be able to challenge yourself. You got to give yourself some bad lies and, and try to figure it out. And right. golf tends to present that self even when they're practicing. So when they're playing on the golf course, you know, they, they start learning and through time they start learning how to, you know, overcome some of these challenges, hit some of these non-standard shots. Um, so that's, that's one of the good things about golf is that, you know, it makes you, it makes you learn how to handle adversity because if you don't, then you're not going to last very long. It keeps you humble. Yeah. And it keeps you humble. That's so cool. <laughs> the little white ball will keep you humble. <laughs> so that's really interesting because, I never really thought as golf as such a plethora of emotions and skills. And I mean, it, that really is quite intriguing. Maybe it's because I, w- I would probably have been one of the ones we did out in like the kindergarten of golf school because I would just get frustrated. You know, no, I'm, I'm going to run. I'm running. See ya. Yeah. Um, so as far as have you found, is there personalities that you find that really are able to deal with all the things that golf, the diversity, or is it just, or, or a, maybe an experience that they had or, you know, they're just some that have more grit than others or. I think, you know, personalities I don't get into very much. I'm not a huge fan of personality research. Um, we find that they don't predict a whole lot of outcomes very well. Uh, so what we have found is that people who have dealt with adversity, people that have faced some things before coming into, you know, golf, they have a different perspective and and they're able to kind of keep golf, you know, in a perspective where they don't let it get too big and, and and they don't create some of those pressures that other golfers um, who haven't experienced some of those challenges um, have faced. Do you find that their language is different? Like, I am a golfer or I play golf. I mean, I've heard, I've read different things like that with athletes. I'm curious, you know, are they identifying themselves strictly with golf or is there other parts of their life? I mean, what have you found there? So now that's so now when we talk about identity, again, we got to be flexible on that hmm. because identi- identity can be a very strong motivator, right? If I identify with something, with some attribute, some characteristic, right? If I want to identify as an athlete, so an athlete identity, right? That gives me guidance. It gives me a blueprint on what I do, what my choices are, you know, because I got to do athlete things. I got to train. I got to be develop skills. I got to have some success in order to, to have this identity and be legitimate. But right, which serves a great purpose because it drives motivation for you to to build those skills, those talents. Um, but then, right, it's good on that side. But then now, when we start experiencing challenges in that identity, and that identity is pretty much if it was like my master identity, if it was like my the one I liked the most, my dominant identity where I attributed kind of my self-worth. Now we got issues. Now we got issues because now if I go out there and I'm like, 
I'm a golfer. So a lot of times, you know, golfers always talk, what'd you shoot? They always, you know, it's like, and if I got junior golfers and they're like, okay, they start overly identifying with their score. And so they're like, now I'm an awesome person. I'm worthy. My parents love me. My coaches love me. My peers love me because I shot 68. This is a good score. I shot, you know, this is, I'm a, that's fine. Right. Okay. Cause they're confident. They're feeling good. But now what happens when you shoot 80, you know, what happens when you shoot 90 right now, if how you feel about yourself is going up and down based how you perform hitting a little white golf ball, we got issues. Hmm. And so the same thing now, when we're overly attached to anything and, and you know, this is, this is not new stuff. It's coming from a lot of Eastern philosophy, right? the root of all suffering is our attachment to things, right? And if this identity is a thing and we value it and we overvalue it and now it becomes threatened, well, then we start experiencing those stresses and, and then that can take us into a downward spiral, which not only inhibits our performance, but our psychological well-being. And so that's a tricky one. And I spend a lot of time when I initially work with athletes going – you're not a golfer, you play golf. Because I'd rather err on that side. Golf is just something that you're choosing to do because you believe it's a meaningful goal to pursue in your life. Essentially, you're just wasting your time. Like, But if you feel like this is a valuable way to waste your time, then do it. But it doesn't define you. You're not defined by your success or your failures. That you have to be who you are as a human being is completely independent and transcends what we do or do not do what we achieve or do not achieve. And so there has to be this level of detachment from that. Now it doesn't mean that you can't gain satisfaction and gain confidence from these achievements, but you know, especially on the flip side of it, when failures and challenges come into play, we don't want to have that psychological roller coaster. You know, we don't want it pulling us down. So you got to have that right, the right perspective on that. And so especially with young athletes that are so vulnerable to that, because quite frankly, they're, they're taught that way. I mean, they learn very quickly. Like, you know, I get a lot of love when I perform well. So maybe I'm my performance, you know, Mm. friends love me. My parents give me more praise. My coach gives me praise. And they learn this attachment real quick. Like, well, that's where, you know, that's what I need to be. That's where I derive value. But that's a slippery slope. So I try to get them off that one real quick. So what, what words do you use to talk to someone? Because, I mean, I mean, you could almost equate that to, like, for example, if I have someone who's trying to change their lifestyle. So if I have someone, I'm trying to move them to a healthier diet or exercise, and one day they do good and one day they don't, you know, I don't want to be the coach that only praises right. them when they do well you know, as a physician, there's a lot of coaching going on. There's a lot of psych stuff and which I didn't, they didn't teach us that in medical school. (laughs) And so you're, you're, you're learning literally by being thrown in the fire. What words do you use for them? I mean, what, how do you pull them out of that, that world so they can understand that perspective? Well, just creating that philosophy, sharing that philosophy with them. So, I mean, because again, right, we know X, so your schema can also be considered an identity. So there's a exercise schematics, which is essentially be saying an exercise identity. So people who identify themselves as exercisers, we know they behave differently. They go on vacation, they find a place to exercise. 
They can be running around in a park and find ways to exercise that most people, they'd use a park bench for doing step-ups or dips or something. People are like, what are these people doing? Which is good, right? Because it's promoting these healthy behaviors because they they internalize those values. But then again, yeah, what happens when when we act inconsistently with how we think we are? Well, it depends on how we think about that. And so, you know, I like to establish everybody with a solid base and starting from, okay, we got to think about who we are as human beings at first and what our true essence is. And again, like I explained earlier, our true essence as a human being is that we are priceless, that we transcend what we do or do not do, what we achieve or what we don't achieve, that this experience of life is invaluable and we don't have to go out and earn accolades like who we are just as a human being is right great enough it's good enough sufficient and so now that aspect that true self has to transcend every other type of identity now it's not it's not saying that you can't have other identities because people have different domains in their life right you're a physician you're a mom You've got all these different identities, um, which are valuable to you and which you derive satisfaction, which is all fine, but you have to be able to do that from a perspective of, but this is just a domain. This is just one area. This is just a part of this human experience. And, and with that viewpoint, it kind of, so when we detach from things, when we can observe things, when we can look at things from an outsider's perspective or from a distance, we know that it reduces the emotional response or can dampen the the response. So, and obviously we're more concerned with the negative responses. So when we face failures, when things in that domain aren't going as well as we would like, we can look at them and learn from them, but not have the same kind of emotional reaction, especially from the negative sense when it gets us down, when it undermines our confidence or undermines our self-esteem, right? So when those things start going, now now it's like when I make a mistake and now I feel like I'm horrible, rotten, no good individual, that I'm a failure, that, you know, I have no self-control, no, that's that's not the true essence of you. That's not the totality of you. It's just, unfortunately, as humans, we we make mistakes, but the mistake's just a mistake. It's just not, you know, behaviors are behaviors. So when, you, you know, physicians make diagnoses, sometimes they make errors when they make diagnoses, but the physician's not an error, and the phys- physician shouldn't be, right, decreasing their value as they see themselves as a human being just because they acted as a human being the same with a golfer right you hit a bad golf shot you're not a bad person because you hit a bad golf shot it's just hard to hit good golf shots all the time right but you have to be able to have this perspective that knowing that you aren't those things right you aren't the mistake mistakes a mistake which is unpleasant and unfortunate but now Actually, it's a good source of information, right? As a physician, you know, a lot of our medical breakthroughs have come from mistakes. Mm -hmm. So we can't look at them as all bad. You know, we were, Mark and I, you know Mark Ferris. Yes, Mark Ferris. We were giving a talk at um, 
A&M's med school, third year med students, we were giving them, you know, a, a talk, the Eve of React talk, and I was talking to them about stress, and one of the physicians like, you know, hey, Dr. Tangy, this is great, love what you're talking about, but, you know, we make mistakes and people die. Right. I'm like, yeah, I know. And yes, that is bad. Right. But at the end of the day, right, you can't sacrifice your humanness. At the end of the day, you're a human and humans make mistakes. It's not like we held a gun and shot our patients. I mean, that's really tough. So how do you unplug someone who's in the middle of all that in in mental and emotional turmoil and give them what, like, what practical skills do you allow them to step back and talk to themselves in third person and look at it from this outside perspective? I mean, what, what, what are those practical everyday skills that, that you give them to use? Well, just what you said, stepping back and talking about it in the third person is mm. one, one way to do it instead of talking about it in the first person. Cause we know people that are too wrapped up in first person using I and me, right? tend to be depressed, tend to, right, that, that trajectory, that over-internalization can lead to anxiety and depression. But individuals who don't talk in the first person, you can, who can distance themselves and just talk about it as this event that transpired, mm. then you're able to kind of look at it from a different, from this space, from a safer space. And so writing writing is a tool that you can use, but you want to write about it in that sense that this is what happened. So like you were a reporter reporting on an event, like you were just right. Like as a, as an objective viewpoint that had no emotional investment that was just strictly, okay, so Dr. Marvis failed to do this, or she made this error in diagnosis going back and saying, okay, well, what happened and where can I learn from this so we don't happen again? Don't get caught up. And, you know, unfortunately with physicians, I mean, if you have, I've I've been blessed, thank God, and hopefully never happens that I've never had anyone die from an error. But, you know, I can't even fathom what that must be like on the physician side or even someone, for example, who, um, you know, I, I, I think about uh, inadvertent like accidents, you know, someone's driving and they, you know, they didn't look at their blind spot and they didn't turn to look at the blind spot and they cut someone off and someone dies from a car. So, I mean, there's so many things in life where, I mean, really is, life is actually really fragile. It really is, <laughs> people don't understand what, I can't even fathom how that must be like to deal with. So if you're dealing with someone with a lot of emotional trauma, I don't know if you deal with, with that type of individual. So. I mean, I'm just, that is, that would be a really interesting thing. Well, they find writing is very helpful for traumas, but it is, but again, it is from a certain viewpoint. And so you're trying to write about it from this third person perspective, from an outsider's perspective, from a fly on the wall. And they also suggest that you're writing about it, trying to kind of explain how it happened or why it might might have happened Mm. rather than just kind of, regurgitating writing what happened all the time we don't want to just replay the story over and over again Mm. right so we want to be able to to write it and get it out because writing is also a form of release getting it out on paper instead of bottling it up and suppressing those things um is one of the aspects that tends to be um salubratory so 
but it's just, you got to have the right perspective of it and you got to be able to look at it, you know, so that it is this process of gaining insight, gaining understanding so that we know, right. That this was just, you know, and then it's also part of it's also taking a, a more optimistic perspective from it. So mm-hmm. we find <clears throat> the differences between optimists and pessimists are how they explain success and failure. Okay. So on the fail, we'll stick to the failure side. An optimist is either going to externalize the failure. It's not my fault, right? Something else is to blame. Or if it was my fault, it was a temporary thing that caused it. Some temporary mistake. Just unique to this situation. Okay. Right? So then it's not going to, it's not likely to happen again. Where a pessimist is going to be, it's all my fault. <laughs> it's going to ruin everything. And I'm going to make the same mistake over and over. I'm always going to have this mistake happen. Mm. So, you know, some of it is, and I talked to my, you know, my golfers, is somehow we have to be able to look at it, knowing that it's temporary, knowing that it's going to pass, but pull the teaching from it, but then also perceive it as, okay, well, this is an easy fix. Now that, now that we have the information, this is an easy fix. You know, in the medical profession, obviously it's unfortunate because it came at a at a high cost. Right. But we can't say it's all bad. That's where we got to be flexible again, right? We can't just qualify it as all bad. Yes, it is bad. But at the same time, there's been a lot of positive, a lot more lives were saved too. Again. Right. Right. So, I mean, yeah, many things that have occurred, you know, errors that led to multiple lives being saved because right. of one sacrifice or so getting back to that optimism, pessimism, I mean, there's some really good studies on like positive health outcomes, depending on this innate optimism, pessimism thing. I mean, like cardiovascular disease and other things, maybe even cancer risk. So cancer. how do you, how do you teach optimism? Well, so <laughs> or you do you, book, can you? You give them the book, Learned Optimism by Dr. Seligman. Um, oh, I love Dr. Seligman. Oh, so I haven't read that one yet. He's okay. our father of positive psychology. And yeah. one of his first books was, you know, that, that's where his area of research came about. Was first it arose out of the learned helpness, helplessness behaviors. And right. then started differentiate, well, who, who becomes, the, who experiences learned helplessness. And then they came to the conclusion, the conclusion because they're cognitive psychologists is that it's how people explain the outcomes. How do we explain, you know, cause and effect is a muddy thing too. Um, we don't always know exactly, but what we do know is how we think about the cause and effect is going to impact us from a psychological standpoint, whether it's our subjective well-being, sense of self, positive um, health psychology but also from a performance aspect, you know, how is my confidence going to be able to maintain, be maintained so that I can, you know, perform well in the future. So what we find with athletes, athletes have what's called a self-serving bias, which optimism tends to be a self-serving bias, right? Where they do Jordan misses a putt, Jack Nicholas misses a putt, Tiger Woods misses a putt. It's because of a spike marker, Caddy gave him a bad read or some bump on the green, right? That's externalizing failure, mm. right? That's like, it's not me. I can maintain my confidence. Or if they do internalize it, it's like, 
Okay, yeah, I just misread the putt. Well, misreading, that's an easy fix. I'll read the next putt. So it's temporary. Like the next putt I'll read correctly. No big deal. No need to worry about it. You know, so it's it's just being, so that's the style that you learn to recognize is, okay, am I internalizing? Am I taking too much responsibility maybe for something that really isn't 100% within my control? Or if it was within your control and you want to internalize it, be like, okay, yeah, you made a mistake, but the mistake is temporary, right? Because you're going to learn from this. You're going to adapt your skills, your knowledge base. So when you're in a situation similar to that, you're going to have the correct answer, the correct response. So we're good. So now we can feel good. And, you know, obviously you're going to feel some disappointment still with, you know, not obtaining the goal we wanted or having a tragedy happen. But so they just look at it as, you know, it's the personalization. Is it internal, external? The permanence of it, is it going to be something, you know, am I always going to misread putts or is it just, you know, a one-time event? It's very temporary. It's not permanent. And then the pervasiveness of it, do I generalize it to, all aspects of my life or do I just keep it specific to this one event, this one day, this one skill? Because if you just think it's okay, it was just this one event. It was just this one patient. It was just this one diagnosis. That's much easier than, well, you know, I'm probably going to misdiagnose everything now. Like if you overgeneralize it, to, uh, you know, I'm going to, I don't know if I can accurately diagnose any disease now. Right. Well, obviously, your confidence as a physician is going to go down, and and your sense of satisfaction is going to go down, and and you're going to experience more negative emotions than that. So, the simple answer is, yeah. Well, then you just got to learn how to to shift your thinking. And so, when I'm working with athletes, I'm like, the bottom line is, it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's what's giving you an advantage and what's creating a disadvantage. We got to get rid of anything that creates a disadvantage for you. And we got to start thinking in a way that creates an advantage for you. And if it's having a bias, obviously in the context of golf, you know, if you want to blame somebody else for you missing a putt, blame somebody else, right? But that's not, you know, we can't use that everywhere. You know, you make a mistake, you got to own that mistake in most aspects. But again, that doesn't need to ruin everything. We can own the mistake, but then view it as, well, this is just a temporary, it's a learning experience easy fix. We're good to go now. Right. So then even if it isn't an easy fix, at least you're looking as instead of defining failure as a true, like judgment upon your character, your, your being as a human, you're like failure is just information. I think someone quote, I don't remember who it was when Thomas Edison and he's like, he had 9,999 ways to figure out how the light bulb wasn't worked. It was just, one more step closer to when the, when it actually worked. And, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know the accuracy of yeah. the 10,000 tries, but I think it's pretty cool analogy with anything in life. Hmm. So when you're, when you're sitting there and a golfer is starting to have struggles, I mean, where do you even begin to dissect? Do you just talk them through an event maybe that they're kind of ruminating on or are you, or do you, watch them or how how do you start to peel back the layers and get to the core of the issue? Well, at first it's just 
through them talking it out and them sharing. So usually they'll share certain experiences, right? A failure that comes readily to mind. And we just try to get in as deeply as we can to understanding, okay, well, you know, where was your focus of attention? What, what type of thoughts were you having? You know, were you having thoughts that create fear, doubt, and worry and undermine your confidence? Or were you? Because I'm trying to relate this to, because, you know, for me, behavior is a huge thing because I, I truly believe if you're going to have a health revolution in the United States, we have to have actually encourage healthy people you know, yeah. actually become healthy and we're not going to drug anybody to become healthy. No, we're just not, it's just yeah. not the way it works, you know? So I'm trying to think of when I have people who are trying to develop healthy behaviors and they fall off the wagon, so to speak, and they have a bad day and, you know, some just jump back on and like, this is a journey. It was a little hiccup, whatever. Those are easy. But then I have these ones that like, they come in and they're just like devastated that they suddenly had this you know, they had a donut one day and, and then they just ate the rest of the day. I don't care. I just, it's just over now. So. Right. But that's a very narrow way of functioning in life, right? That's a very yeah. narrow definition of success, right? Mm-hmm. That they're defining success as I absolutely abstain 100% of the time from donuts for the rest of my life. Right. That. Clear. Don't have a donut ever again. Well, good luck right. with that. I, I mean, so, <laughs> How do you help someone navigate that, though, to understand that it was just a temporary external experience, that we've learned something? Where, you know, like, do we say, like, well, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Were you under stress? How to prepare for it next time? Is that kind of, are you learning to prepare yeah. for it next time? That's part of it. But part of it, again, first, you got to go back. And first, they have to have a realistic expectation of, look, you're not going to go through this flawlessly. You're not going to go through any Mm. change flawlessly. So one, let's have a realistic approach. Let's not create this narrowly rigid definition of what success looks like. Like let's be a little bit more flexible and, and broaden, give ourselves an opportunity to be successful to begin with, Mm. because we know when people start taking that all or none approach, it doesn't work. So is that is that kind of where you get the small victories to m- approach? I mean, like people just give them something that you know they'll succeed, and they build their confidence upon that. Is that part of it? Or is that something separate from? Yeah, that's part of it, but also part of it, you know, is just having a realistic. And again, it's got to be flexible because you have to be really flexible in saying. At one point, you got to be like, look, this that's. You know how challenging it is to change? Yeah. So you got to have this understanding, right? It's a challenge. But then we can't be too stuck on that perspective because if we believe it's too challenging, then we're not going right, to believe it's worth the effort. If it's too hard, well, then who's doing it? So right. then we got to right, be flexible and go, but it's easy because all we got to do is this. So now... Part of it is identifying, well, what are the behaviors that we want you to do? Can we just get you to do those behaviors more and the behaviors that aren't so good a little bit less? We don't have to abandon them completely or make these narrow, strict right rules where it's like, oh, yeah, you deviated from what you're supposed to do and you know had a setback, had a donut or had one too many glasses of wine. Now everything's completely ruined. 
Again, yeah, good luck with that. I mean, you can't, so you gotta be, they gotta have the flexibility to, to go back and forth. But again, most of it is where are you focusing your attention? Are you focusing your attention on what I want to be doing? Or are you so consumed with what you can't do, what you shouldn't do, what you don't need to be doing that it's creating all this stress and just really compelling you to go do them anyway? Because that's where your right. focus attention is. But then again, yeah. also, two is at the end of the day, can you look at it and where are you dwelling? Are you dwelling on the one donut you ate or are you dwelling on the successes that you had? The fact that you went for a 30 minute walk, the fact that you, you know, you had two other really good meals, you know, where are you dwelling? It's the same thing with athletes. It's like, are you dwelling on your one bad shot during the round or are you focusing on the 10 great shots that you had? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know where your confidence and psychology is going to go, right? right. What we attention grows. If you're dwelling on your failures all the time, then you're going to feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just working them through this process that they got to be more realistic. They got to be more flexible and they got to create, you know, a challenging, but a reasonable means for success. So it's not, and that's why all these fads, these extreme fad diets don't work because you can't operate at the extreme end of a continuum very long. Right. Like nobody can go do insanity, that high intensity workout for very long. You know, most people can do it for a few workouts, but then they're like, this is just too tough and stinks. You know, high, highly trained athletes, they'll do it because motiv- they have a lot more motivation and their goals and whatever. But the normal pop, most people, they don't want to do that all the time. Right. But if they right. feel like that's the definition definition of success, right, then they're they just going to feel like failures. And then why, why, why even bother with this exercise thing? Because I, I end up failing all the time anyway. Well, the reason you failed is because you set yourself up with unrealistic expectations and you mm-hmm. took on a challenge that just wasn't realistic. Yeah. Most people would fail. So setting realistic expectations, having that conversation with yourself that it's a failure is not a judgment upon you, but it's just a bit of information on how to do better next time type thing. Externalize it. If you do internalize it, it's like conversation. Certainly. And so, yes, you got to learn. Okay. Had the donut. Why'd I have the donut? Why did... Why did Eric eat the donut today? So not, you know, again, you don't have to internalize it, but it's like, because it was there, you know, and, and I and it was stressed out and I was in there. There's reasons, right? We can come up with an explanation for it. It's like, okay. So right. are there things that, you know, that we can change that, you know, may make the likelihood the next time, Right. Can we just be now a little bit more aware of like, okay, yes, there's a donut there. You're more than welcome to eat it. But let's just take a second here and go, is it worth it? Like, mm. are the goals that I have for myself valuable enough for me to be like, you know what? I can skip the donut this time. But you know what? Maybe next time I might have the donut, but I don't, it's not this battle between, you know, the forbidden fruit, so to speak. It's like, you know what? If I want to have a donut, sometimes I can't. But I also have the ability to be like, you know what? I don't have to have the donut. And so some of it is building up 
that skill set where they can go and like, okay, get yourself in a situation that challenges you and show how you can restrain. So it's almost like, so there's, I think there's two sides of this. So you have the pause that you're describing, maybe like, let's pause. You're you're not saying you can't have it, but let's pause and say, is is that what I want? And then, but I'm curious though. So that's one thing. So that's actually repeating a bad habit that we're trying to break versus you have someone who's trying to do a good thing or do something that like hit a golf ball down the, the, the straight away or yeah. Okay. <laughs> I need to get my, my words right. Um, so you have someone hitting the ball, but, and they had all intentions. This is a good thing and did it right, but it's still skewed to right or left or went the wrong way. And now we have that failure. So it's not like we had to, we could have paused and said, Oh, we're going to do this. So how, do you see what I'm talking about? That difference, but when the pausing, I could make a decision and then that's separate versus reaction, reacting to what happened, even though my intentions were good and I still had a bad outcome. How well, then you just have to accept it. Right. So then that's where oh, okay. it's in place. So anything that's already happened, I got no choice but to accept it. Because if I can't change it, there's not a whole lot of use for me to worry about it too much anymore or dwell on it. Because it is what it is. You ate the donut. So now post-donut, it's like, there's no use beating yourself up and being crazy. You got to accept, okay, yeah, you know what? I was faced with this challenge. I lost to the challenge this time. But okay, let's just heighten our awareness. So maybe next time. Or look at it. Like, why? Why was why? Well, maybe it's because I wasn't prepared. I didn't have anything. You know, I didn't have an alternative thing to eat at that time. And or, you know, maybe it was just, it's just, a, it just happened to be a special circumstance. You know, it was somebody's birthday, which, you know, I guess if you work in too big of an office building, you could have birthdays every day, but, you know, writing it off and look, it was just a one time, it was just a random event. It's like, which is fine. It's success. I had one donut too. That's reasonable. Mm-hmm. But then just being able to look after the fact, then you just have to, you have to accept it. It is what it is, but then you can learn from it and be like, okay, were there, were there any things that, you know, that sabotage me from, you know, behaving in the way that I'm committed to behaving if it, and if it's giving up donuts for the rest of your life, then, then, you know, you're analyzing, well, what was it? And stress is a factor. You know, if you are extremely stressed, old habits tend to get thrown into action. And Mm -hmm. so you know, you can understand like, okay, I got to have, I got to have a solution. And so then you do have to give them alternative behaviors. They need something to replace the bad behavior with. So, but that's part of the process. And you just got to look at, okay, now I know like, okay, now, now I'll be more prepared for the next time. And, you know, next time I can make a different choice. So basically you're preparing them for the obstacles that they well, one, I think it's probably easy. Some people know, well, I have this bridge tournament that I'm going to, and I know when they when I go to the bridge tournament, because I'm still going to socialize, they always serve donuts. So yeah. I'm going to go, I mean, they're going to eat beforehand or bring my own food. So that's a way, one way, versus these obstacles you don't see that are coming and they weren't prepared. But, but if you fail, it's just a learning opportunity because it might help again. I've learned one more little bit of information to make me more successful in the future. Yeah. Then you have this acceptance, though, because acceptance, that's a tough one because you have so many belief systems, you have different um, 
you know, especially like, I mean, if you grew up, I mean, like an athlete there, like you said, I mean, I know parents who were like, they themselves identified through their children's failures or successes. And so the kids take that on. I mean, I mean, my kids have played every single sport you can imagine since the age of three, my oldest is almost 24. So I'm like, you, you look back over all those years and all those parents and all those different things. There's a, it's very pervasive. So how do you help someone learn to accept? Okay. This is how it is. Is it just changing the dialogue that how they talk about it in their head or what exactly? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you got to create, again, you got to create a different philosophy. You got to create a different narrative for yourself and, and what mm-hmm. defines who you are and, and, you know, the realistic parameters of that. I mean, just so you, your humanness. Again, if we go back to the humanness, if I can buy into the belief that, okay, look, I'm invaluable just as I am, perfectly imperfect, right? We can put out all the cliches you want there. Now the person's got to buy into that, that, mm-hmm. you know, my successes don't define me. My failures don't define me. They're just experiences. Now, obviously, we want more pleasant experiences than, than unpleasant, but we get them all. Mm-hmm. And so now it, is, it, it becomes, well, how are we going to choose to respond to those things? How are we going to choose to respond to our successes and understanding like, yeah, okay, this doesn't change me, but this is, this is just a fun experience. It's really all it is. It's just, yeah, this is a reward. This is you know, proof that my hard work paid off and I get to enjoy this for a little bit. And then the failures, what's that? Good. Do you find that that's like a muscle that just needs to be used over and over again? Or is it some people just like, once you like, they like have an aha moment, they're like, Oh, okay. Or, or is there a spectrum of, of people? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a spec thinking you could think about it as a muscle, right? Cause we develop it and mm-hmm. we form habitual patterns of thinking. So optimists and pessimists are just habitual patterns of thinking and perceiving the world, explaining the world. And you just get stuck in, this is how I explain the world, right? Optimists explain the world, as we've said earlier. We see the trajectory of optimists. They tend to be healthier. They're in the doctor's office less. They're more successful. They have higher levels of subjective well-being. They're happier. All these positive, I mean, it's robust. It doesn't matter what domain you study, the optimists tend to win out. Now, we got to be like, well, what is it? And we're focusing on the cognitive aspect. Well, they think about things differently than the pessimists. The pessimists internalize all their failures. So now they think that they're worthless, horrible losers, right? They think that it's always going to be that way. I mean, of course, yeah, that's where you're going to gravitate towards learned helplessness, where essentially learned helplessness was nothing I do matters. So, you know, I have no control or impact and that's not a good place to be from a psychological health standpoint, right? It's not a very motivating place to be either. Now we're making it sound, I'm trying to make it sound really easy, but yes, it's difficult to change that pattern. It's difficult to shift, but we know now there's enough neurological data out there that we know we can change how we think, right? The little neuron connections in our brain can detach and relocate. They can form a new habit pattern. 
whether it's cognitive or behavioral. Mm-hmm. So, but again, it, it you know, you got to want to. So there's got to be some meaning and value there. And then it takes a lot of discipline. So, you know, again, it's being flexible because I'm not saying that having unconditional acceptance. So if I say you got to have unconditional acceptance, unconditional self-love, self-acceptance. I'm a human being. I have all the best intentions. Sometimes I mess up. That's what happens. Now, you have to have the flexibility to go, yes, I'm still perfectly imperfect. I haven't lost any value. I'm still worthy of love and respect for people. But there is an aspect where if I want to change genuinely, then I do have to have discipline. It's not a lack of, I'm not saying that you're just like, okay, yeah, everything's great. Everything's, but you know, you do recognize like, yes, I'm, I, I slip up, but we're just trying to reduce the slip ups. Again, we're not trying, we can't, we can't eradicate mistakes. It's the same when I'm working with a golfer, I go, I don't care who, what swing coach you have. I don't care what sports psychologist you have. You're not going to hit a good shot every single time. It's just not the game. There's no swing coach out there that's teaching his golfers not to hit a bad shot ever. Mm. It's just not realistic. You're going to make mistakes. And same thing. You can be as positive as all get out. You can have the best image. You can be as confident as all get get out, see the ball flying right into the hole, and hit a bad shot. It happens. Right. And we have to be able to accept those things. That's just the natural vagaries of life. So I mean, yeah, even the best baseball players, I mean, fail, what, 60, 70% of the time? 70, more than 70%. The top guys are batting 300. That's 70% failure rate. There you go. Most of them are below 300, so we're getting a little bit there. Yeah. I mean, that's just the nature of a beast is that we have shortcomings. We have failures. But again, we're just trying to reduce. When I talk to my athletes, I'm like, look, I'm just trying to increase your odds for success. And if I can take you from a 49% chance to a 51% chance, do it. It's Mm -hmm. worth it, right? And so, you know, if we shift this person from having, we want to use the donut example. Let's say over the past five years, they average 300 donuts a year. Okay. Okay. If we can take that average down to 200 donuts the first year, right? We've made progress. So it's, you gotta, that's where you gotta start. You know, people get so stuck on either dwelling on how far they got to go or they just keep dwelling on every little shortcoming, every little misstep. And they don't focus enough time on, well, how far have you come? Or what are your success? What are the things you've been doing right? We don't dwell on what we do right. One, we can explain away because when we do things right, it's, you know, it's not necessarily as, I mean, we do learn from it, but they say that we're more biased towards a negative because now we really have to learn from it. Like negative experiences, things that threaten our survival, we need to remember those things and remember the things that led to those things so that we can correct it. Yes, there's time to be negative. Again, flexibility, we got to learn from those things. But if you want to be depressed, you can just keep dwelling on your faults and your errors or anxious or worried. Right. But you got to be able to, you know, make the shift and be like, okay, yep, this was, this happened. Wasn't ideal. Let's learn from it, move on. But 
you got to spend most of your time basking and dwelling on, okay, what am I doing right? What, what steps am I making that are taking me closer to who I'm trying to be, what I'm trying to obtain and repeat those behaviors more. Just be like, okay, well, because the path to success isn't difficult. It's usually just a few things. It's just, you got to do those few things over and over and over again. And it doesn't mean you're not going to do a few things that aren't in line with that. It's just that at the end of the day, these got out, the the things you need to be doing got out number the things you don't need to be doing. Right. So So it's almost like learning, you know, like growing up. I mean, those who I think are happier, less likely to fail are going to be the ones that learn from others. So you're like looking at people, okay, they did this. Let's, let's, let me try to avoid that. But also looking at those who succeed, right. And doing what they've done ahead of you. So that was the whole positive psychology movement. It's like, why do we keep studying disease and failure? We just get, we're stuck in disease and well, and I, and I agree. And I think it's made the culture of medicine one of disease management and that yeah. we, we've accepted the fact or we accept the, the false paradigm that a disease state is normal. It is not yeah. normal to be sick. Right. And, and, and it just it's pervasive throughout all of medicine. And I didn't realize that until I started getting into lifestyle medicine and helping people get well. I mean, I always had good habits and healthy, but I never really correlated those two and it was a big shift in my thinking and it was kind of depressing yeah we do need to shift to a health a proactive health model right Um, but there's so many things to i mean that's a whole nother five-hour conversation (laughs) there are challenges because people people resist change so they do. And I think we forget that it's also going to take work. And I love the fact that you said it takes discipline because it actually, I mean, it does take discipline. It takes work. Cause like when I went through medical school, my kids were five, three and 10 months old when I started medical school. Mm-hmm. And it's like that took discipline and daily grind. Yeah. Just, you know, and I, I read a book and I interviewed Carolyn Miller Adams on getting grit. It's like, it really is grit. Like you just, it's, it's continuing doing those things over a long period of time. And that's how you're going to get the success. So, but wow, that I know I've kept you over an hour and I thank you so much for your time. Is there any like last bit of advice you would give someone, let's say they're an amateur athlete and, you know, they're also dealing with stress on a different level, trying to improve performance even for themselves or maybe in, you know, kind of competitions. Um, I know in my own head, like when I'm running, like I only train for marathons once every five years. I run half marathons. Like it's no big deal, but I hate marathons because it's painful. So it's this positive, this thing that's going on in my head because I know I can push myself further. What other advice would you give someone who's maybe hitting a wall in a performance level when you know it's a mindset? Or would you just have general advice for someone who's trying to improve themselves athletically or otherwise? Well, a lot of it is... You got to you got to figure out where you want to go. So you got to create a vision of what you want to do. Mm. And so a lot of it is just spending some time. So when I talk to athletes now and I'm like, okay, confidence, we know confidence is this big thing. But then you got to understand, well, what does it look like? What does confidence look like? What does it look like for you? What does it feel like? And then we start going, well, well how does confidence think? Mm. How does, what does confidence do? Then you just got to do those things. That's the blueprint, right? If you want to be more confident, 
you got to think, act, and do the way you would when you're really highly confident. So some of it, you know, if you have to look to the future and imagine yourself achieving the goal already, and you know, it changes people. They, they get all this positive affect thing about, yeah, this is going to be great. And I'm like, well, just do that. Just pretend you just take that and use it now. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for the confidence and the excitement and the positive energy of when you achieve it. Right. Use it now. But so it, part of it's just creating this blueprint. If you know what you want to do, then just spend more time doing those things. So you just basically vision the future and then, you know, fake it till you make it type thing. And so like, exactly. keep working it, doing it until you're, you're contrasting where am I at now? What do I need to do? I love how you kind of labeled it like confidence. Like it's a, it's a being, it's an entity. It's like, what it, does that look like? Right. That's all it is. Is a, It's just, huh? It's, it's like just, your avatar. That's your avatar. That's like your, your, oh, it's really a mode like of operation, that. essentially. It's just a uh, mode of operation. So but you just have to get good at it. But then you have to understand again, you know, sometimes you're going to act incongruent with that thing and you just have to be able to take a step back, accept it. It happens. Okay. Well, let's learn from what, you know, what are some of the things that started, you know, creeping in and, and getting me to act in a way that isn't consistent with confidence. You know, what are some of the thoughts that I had that started undermining my confidence started, you know, leading. And then I got to be like, okay, I got to be ready for when those those thoughts start to creep in because those thoughts start making me do these things, which a confident person wouldn't do. Hmm. And so now, you know, eventually when you start recognizing that it's coming, then you're going to be like, okay, I and then they'll more focused to just stick to what I know to do. Huh. Now, the hard part is, is that it has to be, this is the hard part. And I know we're trying to wrap this up, but no, no, I'm, I'm, I just don't want to take more of your time. So I can. <laughs> this, it has to be non-contingent. So when we start talking about attitude and the mental aspects of things, unconditional self-acceptance, unconditional by definition, right, is non-contingent, hmm. right? It's right. all the time. Right. I can't be confident only when I'm getting the feedback, when people are giving me love, when the shots are going in, when the ball's falling in the hole, when I'm getting, you know, all the success. Right. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Right. You have to be confident when shit's hitting the fan, when you just made a mistake. Right. That's, you. it's a mindset. You just have to be like, okay, yeah, this happens. And you. that's where the discipline and the commitment has to come in is like, nope, I got to stick to doing it this way. I can't panic and start trying to search for a new method and try to reinvent the wheel. I just, I know what works. I just, you know, got away from it. I got to get back to it. So it has to be this, it, you, you can't waver with the outcomes because then you're just flying all over the place again. And so yeah. with the mental game, and this is what I convinced, I'm like, once we identify the best way for you to optimize your chances to take you to 51%. This is the best odds you have. If you think this way, you have the best odds for being successful. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have to read. We know you just got to be better at doing that all the time. Right. Giving yourself the best chance to succeed every time and not letting yourself fall back into old habits that actually undermines and start decreasing your odds for success. 
which it's almost like they have to believe themselves to be that confident person. And then you need to define that person or yeah, their future self when they fail. What does that look like? And when they succeed, what it looks like, right? Exactly. So how then you prepared. Yeah. How does a how's a confident person gonna re, gonna respond to this? It's just well, they're gonna respond to it like an optimist too, you know, like mm. optimists tend to be pretty confident. So okay, I had this failure. How do I got to look at it? Well, I either got to look at it as not my fault, or it was just a temporary thing, and it's just unique to this one situation, mm-hmm. one this one deal. Right. It's not, it's not all encompassing. It's not going to be everywhere. Well, I mean, and I think too, if you think that way, it, it gives your mind the freedom and to be creative and think outside the box for solutions that you may not have thought of otherwise. I think mean, I think I I know my own life. That's how. I work. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you. That was really cool. And so I hope everyone enjoys this. And where can we find you? Where you said you had a website? Yes. Uh, my website is called Phenom Performance. Phenom. And how would you spell Phenom? That's how would question. you spell? <laughs> P-H-E-N-O-M. Performance. Phenom performance. Okay, got it. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but so everyone will know where to find you. So that is awesome. So thank you for your time. And again, I acknowledge you and for taking time out of your day with us. All right. Great meeting you. You too. All right.